Welcome to Traveling Culturati, where we explore cultures and share travel news, travel tips, destinations, and travel chats. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Well, hey there, fellow Culturati. Javon Harley here, your host and travel pro for Traveling Culturati. Welcome back to another week of travel news, travel tips, and travel chats. My favorite subject. (laughs) Travel is for ever evolving travel trends come and go and some stay and some grow yes i meant grow (laughs) today we're talking about a travel trend that was a niche and is now growing expanding and becoming mainstream whether it's medicinal or recreational cannabis tourism is here and it's here to stay I have a few special guests joining me today who will provide a wealth of information on what to know, places to go, and activities that are all part of cannabis tourism. Make sure you stay tuned for Cultivar, Visit Oakland, and Bud and Breakfast. But first, let's get into a little travel news. The veteran black explorer J.R. Harris, who was born in Louisiana and grew up in Queens, New York, says his thirst for adventure is still as strong as ever. For more than five decades, he has trekked through wilderness areas all over the world. He also says he has no intention of putting away his hiking boots anytime soon. Harris, now 78, has visited over 50 countries across every continent, excluding Antarctica. That's the one that always evades us all, isn't it? Exploring some of the world's most remote areas like Patagonia and the Australian outback. His parents sent him as a Boy Scout in the Catskill Mountains of southeastern New York for his first taste of adventure. According to him, he was taught many skills during his time at the camp including how to read a map, set up a tent, use a compass, build a fire, and identify animal tracks. While growing up in New York in the 1950s, he took many train trips across the country because his father worked as a waiter in the dining cart of a long-distance train, allowing the family to get discounted fares. When train travel was supplanted by American Airlines. When train travel was supplanted by airline travel, his father's job on the train was eventually lost, putting an end to the family's frequent rail journeys across the country. When he was about 12 or 13, he flew from Chicago to California for the very first time. While he admired some of the old pioneers at Boy Scout camp and fantasized about roaming around the Rocky Mountains alone, Harris's first big adventure didn't come until he graduated from Queens College, a public college in New York, where he studied psychology in 1966. He decided he wanted his car to be the northernmost vehicle in the Western Hemisphere. After a while of staring at a map, he noted that the furthest he could possibly drive would be to Circle, Alaska, about 120 miles north of Fairbanks. So that's where he set about making it happen. During that trip, Harris realized he wanted to be an explorer while gazing across at the mountains and wondering what else was out there. He promised himself that once he got home, he would get some trekking gear and spend as much time as he could exploring. In the years since, 
Harris hiked through the diverse landscapes of Canada's Rocky Mountains, South America's longest mountain range, the European Alps, the Pyrenees mountain range, straddling France and Spain, and New Zealand. He's particularly interested in people who live in the remote areas. He loves to learn everything he can about their history, tradition, and way of life. Even becoming a father didn't slow him down. He continued his journeys while his son and daughter were growing up. Harris was able to fund his expeditions through JRH Marketing Services, a marketing research and consulting firm he founded in 1975, and which his younger brother ran while he was away exploring the wilderness. He said the most difficult trip was through the Southwest wilderness of Tasmania in 1992. The most noticeable difference aside from technology advances, according to him, has been the impact of climate change, particularly in some of the most remote areas he's visited. He says the wilderness itself is changing and not in a good way. When he goes out, it's tough to see how the glaciers are receding and things are getting warmer. There are so many forest fires in different places in the world that affect indigenous people who live off the land and they're finding it more difficult just to get food or whatever they need from the land. Harris was one of the few black explorers invited to join the prestigious Explorers Club in 1993. He is now an emeritus member, is currently on the board of directors and as a chair of the club's diversity, equity and inclusion committee. Although Harris didn't necessarily aspire to be part of any particular club, he is aware of the influence that someone like him may have on young people interested in exploring. He frequently visits schools in neighborhoods similar to his own in the hopes of inspiring children to go outside and maybe become an explorer. Now he is approaching the age of 79 and has recently returned from a trek around Sweden. He is planning a trip to Morocco's Atlas Mountains next summer to track down indigenous Berber tribespeople. He also wants to go to Mongolia and connect with the camel herders in the Gobi Desert. When asked what has kept him going all this time, he says it's the same curiosity that got him started as an explorer in 1966. He believes he still has a lot to learn. Baltimore Museum exhibit about the Great Migration gives an Laurel artist a chance to let go of the past. A movement in every direction, Legacies of the Great Migration, is a new group show at the Baltimore Museum of Art. An exhibit by Larry W. Cook Jr., a 36-year-old photographer and Howard University assistant professor. The Great Migration of Larry W. Cook Jr. began with a click of his camera lens. Cook Jr. lost two people he adored, his single mother, who raised him, and his younger brother and best friend. He picked up his camera and went in search of the only member of his family who was still alive, his father, Larry W. Cook Sr., who had been absent from his life for the greater part of his childhood. He said that he and his brother would probably see their father once or twice a year, which made him filled with rage inside and built a wall to protect himself. He wrote in a letter to his father as part of the exhibit that he made a promise to let go of the past and perhaps they can help each other heal. He is one of 12 artists who has been commissioned to create photographs, paintings, films, and sculptures that explore the impact of the diaspora between 1915 and 1970. The exhibit is causing quite a stir owing to the fact that it includes brand new works by three major artists, 
painter Mark Bradford, filmmaker Carrie Mae Weems, and installation artist Theater Gates, and is co-organized by BMA and the Mississippi Museum of Art. The BMA's chief curator, Anna Naim, said the exhibit is expected to draw 30,000 visitors during the show's three-month stay in Baltimore after an attention-grabbing April debut in Mississippi. And it is scheduled to travel to three other museums nationwide after the exhibit closes in Charm City early next year. Cook Jr. worked with a genealogist to trace his father's family back to the mid-19th century for his commission. Let my testimony sit next to yours, a tattered black and white wedding photo of the artist's great-great-grandparents, James H. Cook Jr. and Minnie Pearson Cook, dated around 1900, is included in the exhibit. Cook Jr. claimed that his great-great-grandfather was involved in a fight with a white man and was forced to leave South Carolina for Augusta, Georgia. The artist discovered that once the cycle of separation and loss was set in motion, it continued through the generations and eventually involved his father. His father, Cook Sr., is present in the exhibit in the form of a letter he wrote to his own father, William Cook Jr., whom he addresses as Pops. Cook Jr. said, one thing I learned about forgiveness is that it cannot come with strings attached. His relationship with his dad is a work in progress. He invited his father into the studio at Howard University and pulled out his camera to finish the commission entitled The Great Migration. He said, when I looked through the lens, I could see my father's pain and trauma, but I could also see his sense of pride, his energy, confidence, and love. I was looking at myself in a lot of ways. A huge tunnel has now opened below Niagara Falls. Of course, Niagara Falls has been a magnet drawing global travelers for at least two centuries until this year. However, a massive tunnel buried deep beneath the cascade was off limits to visitors. The rocks beneath the massive triple waterfall that spans the border between the United States and Canada's province of Ontario are honeycombed with chambers carved out to harness the powerful natural forces of thundering overhead. And now on the Canadian side, a 670 meter or 2,198 foot tunnel built over a century ago has been opened to reveal the incredible scale of these engineering marvels. It's been included in tours of the decommissioned Niagara Parks power station, which began a year earlier, since July, 2022. The power station, which operated from 1905 to 2006, diverted water from the mighty Niagara to power massive generators that electrified regional industry and helped Buffalo, a nearby Great Lakes port, earn the nickname City of Lights. The Adams hydroelectric power plant was the first to open operating on the U.S. side from 1895 to 1961. On the Canadian side, the Ontario Power Company operated 1905 to 1999, and the Toronto Power Generating Station from 1906 to 1974. The tunnel held 71,000 gallons of water that moved at 9 meters per second. The gently curving tunnel, built like a fortress, is made of four layers of brick and 18 of concrete and 18 inches of concrete and is surrounded by shale. Since it was built once in the 50s and once in the 1990s, they only performed maintenance twice. The Niagara Parkway, which winds along the Niagara River, 
can be explored on foot or by rented bike. Now, if you're eagerly traveling over this Thanksgiving holiday, you're not alone. The lead economist for Hopper, Haley Berg, said that the Thanksgiving holiday week is shaping up to be very busy. According to a recent report from the travel app, roughly 70% of Americans have travel plans to do just that. Approximately half of American travelers said that this year, this is the first holiday travel since the pandemic began. Travel experts are encouraging those making any sort of journey to prepare for a crowded and possibly chaotic one. Certainly, we're looking to the summer of chaos, cancellations, delays, and travel headaches that experts at Hopper say this holiday season may not be any different. This year, both flight prices and seat capacity have risen. Over the holiday week, nearly 25 million seats are scheduled to depart from U.S. airports at 6% increase from 2019. The Sunday before Thanksgiving, November 20, approximately 3.3 million people are expected to travel. Traveler numbers are expected to peak at 3.4 million on the Sunday following Thanksgiving, the 27th. Travelers should expect long lines and potential delays on these peak days. The busiest day for travel will be Thanksgiving Day, with 2.24 million people expected to travel. According to Berg, Atlanta, Dallas-Fort Worth, and Denver are expected to be the busiest airports that week, with 1.1 million passengers traveling through those concourses. Well, that's all I've got for travel news. And when I come back, we'll have Javon's Travel Minute and lots of information on cannabis tourism. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm your host and travel pro, Javon Harley. Make sure you visit the website, travelingculturati.com. Connect with me on social media and join that travel club. And now, Javon's Travel Minute. Choosing where and when to eat when you're traveling can seem like a daunting task. Who do you ask? Who do you trust? What type of food and restaurants to select? Sometimes we just want something that is simple and easy. And other times we look for those highly recommended and iconic places. I say mix it up for a more adventurous experience. So before you go, search for the traditional dishes, national dishes, and must-try foods. There are many bloggers and culinary writers who provide these lists. I find local bloggers have the best lists because they live there and try many places, new and old. Of course, there is caution that a restaurant has made the list because they have sponsored them or it's a solicited recommendation. Usually they will say this or you'll see an ad next to it. You can ask the hotel concierge as they are in the know with local happenings, including restaurants. You can also ask a local for their favorite places. Rule of thumb is to avoid a tourist trap or restaurant that is near a tourist attraction. These are the ones that are geared more towards tourists and are for more convenience rather than cuisine. If you're at or near a tourist attraction, 
Walk about five blocks in either direction away from the site for more and less touristy options. Every meal doesn't have to be expensive or a full dine-in restaurant meal. You'll find some of the traditional dishes and national dishes in more casual settings and even takeout. If there's a specialty restaurant or chef you've been following and their restaurant is expensive, see if they have a lunch menu. I often find more affordable options and specialty offers at expensive restaurants on their lunch menu. This is Javon, and that was your Travel Minute. There's a new travel trend budding, and it's all the blaze. Can you guess what I'm talking about? I'll give you a little hint. There's some puns mixed in there, definitely intended. I'm talking about cannabis tourism. Since the rise in legal cannabis consumption, destinations near and far are developing programs to help guide travelers seeking cannabis-related travel. Joining me today are Brian Applegarth, co-founder and chief strategy officer of Cultivar Brands, a boutique agency specialized in cannabis travel, and Peter Gomez, president and CEO of Visit Oakland, the city's official destination marketing organization. Well, hello, gentlemen, and welcome to Traveling Culturati. Hello. Hi, good morning. Thank you so much for joining me today. And I'm excited about this today because we're starting to get a lot of questions. I own and operate Advantage International, which is an incentive and group travel specialist company. And I'm starting to get a lot of questions about the programs that we operate when we do our orientations. People are asking more and more about the availability of cannabis tourism at the various destinations that we do, both near and far, as I mentioned, domestic and international. So, Brian, let's start with you. Tell me a little bit about Cultivar Brands. So Cultivar Brands, we're a strategic marketing and events agency, and we really we help destinations and destination marketing organizations, destination management organizations. We help kind of evolve and normalize the cannabis and the hemp travel trend that is evolving globally. So we're really excited to work with destinations like Visit Oakland on creating the Visit Oakland Cannabis Trail as well as other destinations like Visit Mendocino County to just kind of elevate this really exciting new wellness travel trend that is cannabis travel. Absolutely. And I'm glad you mentioned wellness because I want to get into that a little bit later as well. So, Peter, how is Oakland embracing cannabis tourism? Oakland's embracing cannabis tourism 120%. We're all in. And this was a decision that was made roughly about two years ago with partnering with Cultivar and Brian's expertise. We saw that this is a trend that's only going to get stronger. It's only going to get bigger. And people are asking for it. Our travelers are asking for it. So what we made a decision at Visit Oakland is to partner with an expert to, as Brian mentioned earlier, really normalize this as another tourism amenity when getting to a destination. So we've embraced it 100% in so many ways. And it not only is in our site, but we even have a glossary of terms where people can feel comfortable and feel at ease with cannabis travel. Great. Now, Brian, I know that you think that the name is self-explanatory, cannabis tourism, but let's really break that down. What exactly is cannabis tourism? 
Yeah, I mean, cannabis tourism really needs to be looked at in three parts. The first one, which is incredibly important that we always remember as we move forward with this, is that cannabis is medicine. And it was legalized medically in California in 1996, which was a very significant moment of the cannabis legalization movement. And there's a lot of important history and science and research that's being done around the application of cannabis as a medicine. On the other end of the spectrum, you have the adult use recreational side, right? Leisure travel. So people who are traveling with more of a leisure point of view, that could also include business meetings, conferences, and other kind of industry group travel that's happening. And the one last but not least, the third part is cannabis as a tool for well-being and wellness. A lot of people are starting to understand the many therapeutic compounds that exist in the cannabis plant and how that's coming to life today in a very experiential way with cannabis retail, lounges, cafes, wellness centers, events, private dinners. And it's everything from nutrition to spa treatments to cannabis shop experiences or perhaps going to a cannabis 101 class or a cultivation class in a cannabis lounge. So it's a very wide spectrum of experiences, and I really encourage people to look at it as really that well-being intersection of medical and adult use is a great place to, to kind of understand that. Also, a couple important themes that are part of the cannabis story are sustainability and regeneration, as well as DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And there's some really amazing things happening in the cannabis industry and cannabis travel there. So it's really exciting from kind of a storytelling content point of view, because cannabis very much was like a human rights movement for patient access and legalization. There's certainly been an uptick in medical tourism and wellness tourism, especially since 2020 where people are really trying to restore, refresh, recenter. Med spa as well is really on the rise. And I think that this is running parallel to the increased interest in cannabis tourism too. So what kind of things can we look for when we are talking about wellness, spa travel and medical tourism and wellness travel? Yeah, I mean, I think the first entry point that we've seen in the arc of legalization and mainstream adoption is a very straightforward CBD-infused massage, right, which oftentimes comes from the hemp sector, but also from cannabis. There's a cannabis massage, like a full-fledged version of that up in Humboldt County in California, and I believe we're going to see more of that, you know, as these cannabis consumption spaces come alive with cannabis experiences. The first iteration of these was cannabis lounges, and then it evolved into cafes. And now we're seeing wellness centers open up. And I think we're going to see in the next suite of evolution, really creative, innovative spas with more robust consumption, starting with massage, but it will go beyond that. Absolutely. And it will address other points of wellness and kind of dip into that medical space, as you suggested. So yeah, I think it really the frontier. I also believe that we're going to see kind of these wellness retreats that also bend toward medical where people spend two or three days or even longer really understanding how to maximize the use of this plant to improve their quality of life. And a lot of times that will come in medical form, but also that well-being suite is really important. And I mean, truth be told, 
the concept of journeying and mental health and spiritual health is a growing trend. And I think it ties back into that too, of being able to use cannabis as a tool to process or shift your point of view or perspective on things that seem to be blocked. And I think the art form of that is really going to come alive and travel in the form of wellness and even possibly medical. Now, Peter, as cannabis has been legalized, is it statewide or does one need to worry about moving from city to city or jurisdiction to jurisdiction while they're traveling in Oakland and beyond? Well, looking at Oakland, we look at it statewide. I mean, obviously, we're here in California, so it makes it a lot easier than maybe some of my partners or those that are doing my jobs throughout the country. So we look at it on a statewide basis. And there are some rules and regulations as far as promoting cannabis, or as we call it, the Oakland Cannabis Trail. So that is something to keep in mind, especially for those folks on your teams that are doing marketing or consumer marketing and how to go about those rules and regulations. So that's one area. You know, we're talking about obviously spas and medical med spas as a trend in tourism. Absolutely. That's been something that's going on. What I feel is with our cannabis trail that we've created in Oakland, Brian and I have identified the culinary aspect. So if you're Hmm. sitting in a city like Oakland, which is known world-renowned for our chefs, and I mean world-renowned, we are definitely in the top 10 cities for best culinary or variety of culinary, and you have a cannabis trail, its natural progressions are going to become as chefs are looking at ways on how to enhance the cannabis experience through food. And that's a trend that I'm going to focus on for Oakland. It'll be an area that I'm sure our consumers are looking for as they're searching for their next tourist spot to spend the night or their next destination. That is awesome. I'm very much a foodie, if that's still a term that's <laughs> that's used. Yeah, it's still a term. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so very excited about the culinary aspect with cannabis as well. And just seeing where it all goes, how we evolve and move into the future and the inclusion of it as well. So let's talk about Oakland's Cannabis Trail. Tell us about that. It's a trail that really, again, as we talk at different parts of the trail, our main thing is creating a trail that has been vetted. It's safe for tourists that are coming in, meaning safe that we have vetted the businesses. They are ready to welcome our tourists that are coming in, as well as educate them. Oakland has a history of cannabis. Oakland has a history of social justice for decades. And I think that the cannabis movement in California, Brian, has created historical markers for us that I'm sure he can speak more directly to and really connect the traveler to the history of cannabis. And then the trail will include some of the dispensaries, some of the lounges, but not just that, some experiences. So in Oakland, you can be kayaking in the morning and 20 minutes away in the same city, you can be hiking in Redwoods. What are some outdoor experiences that after your cannabis experience, you can also enjoy within our city limits? Brian, if you can expand for us as well, what some of those experiences are. Sure, sure. Yeah. So the Visit Oakland Cannabis Trail is a really special experience. And you could spend a week visiting different spots and shops, as well as the complimentary sensory experiences. To Peter's point, we really highlight some of those culinary specialties and delights of the city. And not only is there amazing restaurants and foodie experiences that go hand in hand with cannabis experiences in Oakland today, but there's also some of the most innovative chefs that are actually 
really kind of leading with the inclusion of cannabis from seeds, from hemp seeds all the way through in kind of more of a sophisticated dining setting. So be sure to check that out in Oakland. Yeah, so we're going beyond the brownies. (laughs) Beyond the brownies, beyond the candies, into true cuisine and culinary art form. And it's just so exciting how cannabis is coming alive. And, you know, it's not surprising that Oakland's leading the way on this. They have a long history with cannabis. It's culturally embedded, really, in Oakland. And there's a lot of important history and moments as part of the legalization movement that happened in Oakland itself. Also, Oakland was one of the areas where it was really disrupted by the war on drugs. And some of these communities were negatively impacted by the targeting that happened with law enforcement around the war on drugs and cannabis. So there's some restorative justice discussions in play, which are really important to include in that travel experience. So going back to the Oakland Cannabis Trail, we have a series of stops. You can find it on the Visit Oakland Cannabis site. And About eight to 10 of those are amazing cannabis shops and lounges that really shine, that are really amazing assets of the city, and that really not only tell a story, but provide an experience that visitors will enjoy. A couple examples of this are Harborside Wellness offers one-on-one consultations. If you schedule those ahead of time, you can come sit with one of their team members and actually talk through your needs and why you're curious about cannabis and what kind of ailments you're trying to treat or whatever your point of view is and walk through that. Another experience is provided by Eco Cannabis Shop. You can actually see the flowers through a magnifying glass and you can smell them and they'll talk you through the different varietals or cultivars of cannabis and why they're special. Also, you have two different places along the Visit Oakland Cannabis Trail that are homes to cultural landmarks on the greater cannabis trail of Northern California. And why that's important is one of those shops is Blunt's and More. And the owner of that shop is Tucky Blunt. I know a very coincidental name, but Tucky was the first social equity license for a cannabis shop in the world. And it's exciting because these equity models that are evolving in cannabis that really encourage and embrace diversion, equity, and inclusion in a really new way are important to understand and understand the context behind why. Tucky was actually one of those people that was arrested for cannabis, and now he's a cannabis shop and lounge owner. They just opened their lounge. So now that he's a lounge and shop owner in Oakland today, and he's able to share that full circle story from arrest, felony all the way through to today's industry and being a leader for Oakland and a voice of telling that story. The other stops along the trail. So you have about eight to 10 dispensaries and lounges today. We're consistently expanding that. But also you have these sensory experiences, those foodie stops, the nature experiences, as well as arts and culture. So cannabis is extremely complementary to those experiences with a slightly enhanced kind of state or point of view. So we also hand selected in Oakland these amazing sensory spots that will kind of surprise and delight you with cannabis as a precursor. One of the things that comes to mind, and Peter, I'll get your take on this as well, because we have to look at it uh, legal versus illegal. And you mentioned earlier about rules and regulations and the things that have to go hand in hand with it. How easily accessible are these rules and regulations and how does one approach cannabis tourism, especially if they're coming to Oakland and making sure that they are following these rules and regulations? 
What I meant by the rules and regulation is the marketing of a cannabis trail and how you can go about doing it. But as far as within the state of California, there's many resources that a business can use as a resource. A lot of them are within their own municipalities. They have those listed. So it's quite easy. So one of the things that I mentioned at the very beginning is vetting an Oakland cannabis trail. The vetting process is important. We wanted to make sure that we vetted businesses that we felt comfortable and that were ready to welcome our travelers that are curious with this trail or with this segment of travel. So is there anything that the consumer or that the traveler would need to concern themselves with? No, I mean, there's also a guide on the cannabis trail, kind of the do's and don'ts while in Oakland and with the trail. So we can pull that up and refer to that. I also wanted to go back and mention that we were talking about the war on drugs and those that have been impacted negatively. The city of Oakland is doing an equity week. November 14th through the 18th, it's going to, they selected Oakland dispensaries that will be offering special deals on products made by local cannabis business owners negatively impacted by the war on drugs. So we are even encouraging travelers to be aware of this equity week because it's storytelling and we're creating storytelling and historical facts of this industry. And I think that travelers will find that very intriguing. I'm really glad that you brought that up because when you're talking about DEI, for example, and the war on drugs and those who were heavily impacted by that, you have to look at the African-American sector. And a large number of my travelers, if not 100%, 99.9% are African-American. I think there may be a hesitancy to say, okay, yes, this is legal, but how do we fit into this? Is there an inclusion with the African-American community? Yes. And that's, so we work really closely with our city who is committed. And that's why this Equity Week was even created by our own city leaders to make sure that those that diversity and, and inclusion is included from the dispensary owners to the business owners that are working with the different dispensaries to benefit from an industry that is growing so rapidly in California and within tourism. Fantastic. So I'd like to get back to the fun stuff, the <laughs> the trails, the experiences. Very interested in talking about more of those sensory experiences. You talked about the wellness clinics. You've talked about the culinary aspect and the spas as well. And you have shops and stops. That's what I'd like to talk about, the shops and stops. What can we expect there? So the Oakland Cannabis Trail, there's really about seven sections, right? So you have cannabis retail shops, which also include lounges bolted onto those, and there's more and more opening up. So right now, I believe there's two to three lounges in Oakland. One is more of a beverage-focused one, non-inhalation, for those of you who don't smoke. It's right by beautiful Lake Merritt, like walking distance. And again, that's an equity-owned shop and lounge doing amazing things called Rosemary Jane. And then you also have Blunts and More, of course, that I mentioned prior that has a lounge. And then you have other cannabis shops like Cookies, Eco Cannabis is one of them, the one where you smell the flowers. You have Harborside with the one-on-one consultations. High Times has a cannabis shop there. There's also a really cool cannabis shop on the other side of Lake Merritt that's like an old theater, but they're intending to turn that in sooner than later into like this cannabis consumption space with movies and documentaries and education, which is really cool. There's also a really new shiny one called Rooted in the 510 that recently was added. So those are the shops and the lounges. Now, a few of those, like I said, are cultural landmarks like Once and More, Harborside, 
Also, Oaksterdam University is something that is a huge part of Oakland's history. It's the most well-renowned global cannabis educational academic institution. And they've been a staple in the community there way before cannabis legalization, providing education to people. Now we'll get into the sensory experiences, right? So you have about 10 places to eat that we identified as really cool fruity spots. One of my favorites is Broadside Local, which is Waterside. You have a breeze off the bay. For those of you who don't know, Oakland has this amazing shoreline as well as these national parks. Like the nature experiences, I feel like they don't get enough airtime. Oakland's packed with these amazing outdoor experiences. And Broadside Local is a nice combination of that. It's a kind of German food place over by Harborside. And then you have Abaraya, Japanese fried chicken. We have a Peruvian restaurant. We have a few others. And then we also have these great outdoors. So you have things like the Brooklyn Basin, Joaquin Miller Park, or Lake Merritt, which I mentioned before. And Pete was saying that you can actually get on the lake. You know, what a great combo. A little cannabis picnic by the lake and then actually getting on the water. And then, of course, we have art. I mean, what is cannabis without creativity and art and things that are inspiring? They go hand in hand. So we have some art galleries. We have Mercury 20, which is one of them. And then we also have these attractions like the Oakland Museum of California, which has rotating exhibits that are always worth looking into and are always a great afternoon when you have cannabis as a precursor to visiting the museum. So that's a little sampling of some of the spots. And if you pull up visitoakland.com, you'll be able to find the Oakland Cannabis Trail and it will lay out all of these for you. And you can start kind of circling the ones that you want to be part of your trip. Also, Brian, as part of the cultivar brand, do you assist companies who may be doing group travel or someone who wants to put together their own group travel to experience the cannabis trail in Oakland? We could. We mostly work with destinations, but we also work in a lot of other capacities we're finding. We're kind of a subject matter niche expert agency in cannabis and hemp travel, and that comes in a lot of different forms. But absolutely, like if you wanted to talk about or somebody wanted to talk about a group experience and get a recommendation on what might be an exciting three-day itinerary in Oakland, just reach out to me. I'm happy to respond to an email or pop on a short call. Is the mapped out trail on visitoakland.com in a printable format, something that's very user-friendly, Peter? Yes, yes, it is. Absolutely user-friendly. Well, great. Thank you so much. This is an excellent narrative, and I think that it's really giving a different look to what we may consider cannabis tourism to be and really looking at the growth of the Oakland Cannabis Trail. Where do we see it going in the future, Peter? It's an evergreen program. As I said in the beginning of the program, we're committed to our cannabis trail and cannabis tourism. Where I see it going is culinary will go very far in 2023. I think that chefs are very interested in either having some sort of event at their restaurants or at their hotels. So I see that aspect of our trail growing quite a bit. And I just also want to say that we're also receiving feedback, right? This is our first year that we just introduced this trail. I do want to share with you that it has jumped to be one of our top 10 searches 
for Visit Oakland. I think that that sense of interest from a consumer standpoint is very rewarding and shows us that it's only going to get stronger. We're getting comments from people throughout the country that have been visiting our city and, and it's working. They're telling me, hey, I came on board to see the cannabis trail. Then I realized you have a lake in the middle of your city and there's so much to do. Or we walked into a restaurant or one of these shops and discovered an amazing neighborhood that I never would have walked into if it wasn't for this lounge being in this area. So it's working at getting the word out ultimately for tourism and economic development and economic stimulus for a town that needs it. Absolutely. Any final thoughts, Brian? Just visit Oakland special globally. You can feel the cannabis as a human rights movement essence within this travel experience as well as all the kind of the enhancement and the things that people know and love about cannabis. So I feel like it's a really beautiful balance and it's a really well-rounded experience. And I think it's incredibly special. So I would encourage anybody who's cannabis interested or cannabis enthusiast to circle Oakland as a destination to check out. Fantastic. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me again. You can find out more information on Oakland's Cannabis Trail at visitoakland.com. And with Brian and Coltar Brands, you can look at cultivarstrategies.com. And that's C-U-L-T-I-V-A-R strategies.com. Again, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you so much. When I come back, I'll have the culture report. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm Javon Harley, your host and travel pro. The website, TravelingCulturati.com, Go ahead and check it out. And while you're there, follow us on social media. And don't forget to join the Travel Club. Why? Because we go to some fantastic places and we're adding new places all the time. Culture is forever changing and reflecting what's happening in the society and with its people. It can be born of the arts, food, music, and sometimes politics and strife. This is the Culture Report. And we're continuing our conversation on cannabis tourism. Yes, cannabis tourism. And if there's anything that impacts a culture or has impacted a culture more recently, that is cannabis as it has become legalized now, not just in the United States, but in other countries around the world. It is now finding its way into travel and tourism in many different ways. And that's what we're talking about today. I have the honor and pleasure to speak with Sean Roby, who is the CEO of Bud and Breakfast, a company where you can book cannabis-friendly accommodations and activities around the world. Hello, Sean, and welcome to Traveling Culturati. Hi, Javon. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. How exciting is this? <laughs> yeah, well, it's no longer a niche. It's coming mainstream all over the world. That is here. <laughs> yes, that I can definitely see. I can tell you more recently, and especially since travel is rebounding since the pandemic, when we do online orientations, one question that continues to come up is cannabis. And what is its legality in the country that we're visiting or what is the accessibility to it? So 
The question is coming up more and more. And like you said, it's no longer a niche, but it's really becoming part of the fabric of travel and tourism. So how has that been for you in establishing Bud and Breakfast? Well, we launched back in 2013, right after Colorado had legalized cannabis. And you know, at first it was kind of like, wow, just show me one model, show me one accommodation that would want to sign up and be you know, cannabis friendly. And now we have over 3000 listings around the world and about 37 other countries at this point. So it's really kind of taken a hold now. The United States is still dragging its feet a bit, but I think that's going to change. We have 37 states that have now legalized for either medical or recreational use. And people are excited and people are wanting to list their property and maybe have an edge over their Airbnb counterpart or, you know, there is no shoulder season with cannabis tourism and bed and breakfast certainly gets rid of the awkward factor. You're not going to go up to your Airbnb host and be like, Hey, do you know where I can get some cannabis? You know, it's, uh, we, <laughs> we, we take care of that for them. Tell us more about bud and breakfast and its accommodations. Sure. I mean, I tell people we have couches to castles. So we list petite hotels, regular hotels, private accommodation homeowners that have a room in their house or they list their whole house or they have a couch. I mean, we basically have seen everything. The hosts that are doing the best are the ones that go the full gamut. I mean, we do have hosts that are, say, 420 friendly and you can smoke outside. They do okay, but the ones that really are booking out and making really their whole yearly income now on our website are the ones that are all-inclusive. You walk in, there's a bud bar, there's a cannabis yoga class, there's a CBD-infused massage, there's a microdose-infused meal. We even have one guy who recently put a zip line up over his cannabis field in the Emerald Triangle, and it's a vineyard. So you're zip lining and you're looking on one side and you're seeing the OG Kush, and on the other side, you're seeing the Pinot Noir. I mean, we're seeing a lot of creativity from hosts, and obviously, the more that they provide the experience, the more that they're getting booked. Absolutely. And when you're talking about that experience, I want to talk about how many experiences with cannabis. And what I mean by that is that not everyone smokes. So what are those different forms of cannabis and how it relates to the industry? Sure. I mean, we get a lot of people who come with their partner say that they don't partake, but then their partner does. You don't have to smoke cannabis to come and stay in a bed and breakfast. It's for everyone. We get medical tourism. I would say that 15% of our travelers are actually coming from draconian states, say like, you know, Alabama or different places where they're really dragging their feet on cannabis legalization. And they come into, say, a place like Colorado and they have an autoimmune disease or their child that has epilepsy. And they're coming to a place and staying at a bed and breakfast where they don't have to look behind their back and over their shoulder that they're doing something wrong. So we're getting a lot of medical tourism. There's, you know, like I said, the edibles, the microdose infused meals, the majority of people are cannabis smokers and they're looking for high grade flour. You know, they come into a city like Denver and the first thing they want to do is they want to go to a dispensary, which they go and they buy way too much cannabis because they're usually staying for three to four days. And then they get to the accommodation and there's already cannabis waiting for them. And then they can't take it back with them. So they leave it with the host and then the host just pays it forward to the next guest. 
So it's kind of a win-win for the host and the guest. <laughs> <laughs> what are those kind of questions that you should ask or that checklist, if you will? Because I always work from a traveler's checklist, but I'm quite sure that's going to look a little different when we're talking about cannabis tourism. <laughs> what does that traveler's checklist look like as far as getting there, what to expect when you get there, what things you need? And even from the, as you mentioned earlier about those states where it's not legalized, what are those pitfalls that you want to avoid because you have to come back home as well? There's an amnesty station at every recreational <laughs> city now where you're like, oops, I have some cannabis still. And you can get rid of your cannabis before you go through TSA. It really is very different for every tourist that comes in. A lot of people are wanting a place that's cannabis friendly. They want to have activities that are revolving around cannabis. So, you know, whether it's a puff paint class or a sushi and joint rolling class or a show at Red Rocks in Colorado, it's very different. Zip lining is never anything that you would have thought of being combined with cannabis before. But I mean, it's surfing and cannabis, hiking and cannabis. I mean, there's forest bathing now that's going on. People want to get out of the city and they want to smoke cannabis to relax and become medicated. And that's the whole point of travel is to relax. And cannabis just enhances that factor for the traveler. It's like that term revenge spending. You know, it's kind of like yeah. the revenge <laughs> traveling. People are really excited and it's kind of like a push and shove type of thing. People are really on the travel train. And we're seeing a big uptick for people wanting to go to international because when the COVID hit, we still were getting bookings, but it was domestic. People were driving. But now the international travel has come back into the fold. And so it's really become, I mean, in a certain respect, overwhelming, you know, the travel industry. And at this point, it's kind of just, keeping people in check with responsible tourism and responsible travel. And, you know, the lucky thing about cannabis is that we get a lot of people that are super conscientious like that, and they are going to health and wellness spas and the culinary with the wellness kind of goes hand in hand. You know, we're getting, you know, people coming to spas that have professional chefs that are educated with microdosing. And when people partake of cannabis, it is medicine, you know, it's not, going out and getting drunk and wasted. There is a medicinal aspect to this whole thing. And combining it with travel is just, you know, utmost relaxation. I can certainly see how that is. And yeah, again, really excited about where this is going. And as the legalization of cannabis evolves, I think we'll start looking at it differently. I mean, let's realize that alcohol had to go through this prohibition and mm -hmm. and, and to get us to where we are now. But as you said, and it's a very good point, it's medicine. And, you know, we have to approach it as such. And I'm happy to see how it's evolved evolving in the culinary world as well. As I mentioned when I was talking to Brian and Peter that it's beyond the brownie, right? <laughs> we all had yeah. this idea of the, right. of the brownie and then, the, of course, the gummies. But now people are really looking at it in many ways. I make these bourbon balls and I jokingly said, hmm, I wonder how it would go well with bourbon balls. <laughs> right. you know, I I, absolutely. You know, and I think, you know, when you look at something like prohibition and post-prohibition and, you know, I mean, it took a generation, in some places, you know, 10 to 15 years for it to become normalized. And I think one only has to really look at, you know, places like Colorado, Massachusetts, California to see how fast it's becoming normalized. You know, I mean, I can walk down the street in Boulder, Colorado and have a joint in my hand, but for God's sakes, if I had a, a cigarette 
I would be looked at like I was from outer space. (laughs) I mean, seriously, I mean, that's kind of where it's at and that's where it's going. So I don't think you're going to see a big gap between when it becomes normalized, like you did with alcohol consumption. Of course, there are those states that will drag their feet. But I mean, like I said, we're going to be at near 50 states soon where they've done something for legalization, whether it be medical or recreational. So I mean, even if it's not federally legal, if you have 45 states out of 50, it's pretty darn close. I can only imagine. I mean, I'm in Chicago and, you know, just down the street from me in downtown Chicago is a store. And yes, I don't think I can go a block in Chicago without smelling someone smoking it. I even uh, went to the movie theater the other night. I don't think it was allowed in the movie theater, but it doesn't mean that someone didn't do it because all of a sudden I'm like, oh, okay, somebody's. (laughs) Yeah, that's Um, a little overzealous, I think. Yeah, it it is. But to your point, it is really happening. So I want to kind of go back before we wrap up, because I think one of the key things that you said is the amnesty stations and (laughs) making sure you know about them. Because again, if you're crossing state lines, you really need to know and understand, you know, what's legal and what's not legal. It is your responsibility. Ignorance is not a defense. Right. You know, when Colorado legalized, I remember all the people would fly in and go to a dispensary. They were so excited and they'd buy a bunch of cannabis and then they'd go out on the street And they'd smoke their cannabis and then they'd get cited. And I think that first year Colorado was making more money citing people when it was legal than they were for citing people when it was illegal, because it was just people just didn't know. You can't walk out on the street in most places with beer and walk around. So you're not going to walk around with a joint or consume cannabis in public like that. And so that's the whole point of Bud and Breakfast. You know, we're providing safe and legal places for people to go and safely consume and relax. Absolutely. And that's what it's all about. Your website www.budandbreakfast.com. <laughs> and certainly I have paid a visit to it. And so you really help the traveler connect with the right accommodations and even activities. And there's a long list of activities and accommodations. Absolutely. The two go hand in hand. You know, a lot of people want to not just sit inside of their bed and breakfast. They want to partake and then go do something fun. And so we're doing 420 activities and cannabis accommodations around the world. Budandbreakfast.com. Sean Roby, CEO of Bud and Breakfast. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Javon. Have a great one. Well, that's it for the show today. Wherever you go, go with all your heart. Confucius. Ladies and gentlemen. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Ladies and